As we make our way back to our seats, I just want to draw your attention to the graphic we have and that we'll have for a number of uh, weeks coming up. Jesus' letters to the seven churches. The book of Revelation is, uh, is the last book of the New Testament. It's one of the most difficult books because of the uh, style of writing and the subject matter. We call that uh, apocalyptic literature as it, uh, as it looks at the end times. The theme of the book of Revelation, of course, is the return of Christ and the glorious ending of human history. And that was given to God's people, as we'll see today, in a time of difficulty, a time of challenge, and a time of suffering. And the whole revelation, as Jesus reveals what is in store for us, comes to us as a uh, vision of hope. And that's really what I want to focus on today. Uh, Rather than getting to the seven churches themselves and the letters that Jesus composed and wrote to them, we're going to look more at the introductory portion of it today. We're going to look at the Isle of Patmos, where the Apostle John was in exile. So I've called today's message Patmos, Vision of Hope. And that's just what we need to hear. John needed to hear the, vision, uh, the message of hope. The hearers of those uh, letters that Jesus wrote to them, they needed that encouragement and that vision of hope. And we certainly need it even today. In May, leaving on my wife's birthday, May 21st, I went with a group of seminary students from Taylor Seminary, and we went to each one of the ancient cities and sites of those churches, the seven churches of Revelation. Of course, we'll see a map a little bit later, and those uh, modern cities are situated now in the modern country of Turkey, a land that's beautiful, and the people are wonderful there, but it's a very different land than uh, John and prior to him, the Apostle Paul, planted and ministered in churches in. So we want to look at this. If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to bring it and open it with me to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation, final book in the Bible, and the first chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1. I love the graphic there. It's one of my favorite pictures of John on Patmos. I love to look at artwork as I prepare sermons that uh, are focused on the same topic that I'll be speaking on or the same passage in Scripture. And here we see John. If you know where the Isle of Patmos is, he's looking at the light and uh, he's probably looking east at the rising sun on the eastern shore of Patmos because Patmos is just a little ways off the coast of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And though it's right on the Turkish coast, and you imagine it's part of Turkey, Patmos is part of the nation of Greece. All of the Aegean islands off the coast of Turkey belong to Greece. Turkey and Greece have fought wars in years gone by. Uh, They divided the island of Cyprus between the warring nations. They have a long and often bloody history, but now they live at peace and they're quite good neighbors, their culture and their food. They may speak different languages and have different religious backgrounds, but the culture, language, uh, the food and so forth are very similar when you travel from Turkey to Greece. Wonderful place. Patmos, vision of hope. John, as he's there, we think of John on Patmos, and of course our minds turn to Revelation. John receiving the Revelation. When I was a kid, as many people did, I called the last book of the Bible Revelations, plural. That book title is actually The Revelation. It's Jesus' revelation to John. 
though there's multiple visions and so forth. So I guess that other name can apply as well. The book of Revelation. Because of that, John, the author of the book, has been called John the Revelator. I love that title, John the Revelator. There's an old gospel song about John the Revelator. Now, John the Revelator, I mention this title for John because this is how the author of the book of Revelation is often referred to, especially among biblical scholars, as different than John the Evangelist. Not John the Evangelist, we think of a person like Billy Graham preaching the good news of the gospel, but biblically speaking, the evangelists wrote gospels. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John the evangelist. Well, many people, scholars especially, think that John the revelator may be a different person than John the evangelist. Why would they say that? It's because the books are so different. The Gospel of John is so different in outlook and content and so forth than the book of Revelation. But to me, as to many other scholars as well that, uh, that you can, we, we read their books, they say no, the differences are because one is apocalyptic literature, it's full of visions and it's received from Christ, and the other is John writing his memories of Jesus and his life with him in the Gospel from his heart. But John is known as many other names. In the early church, in that time and in Asia Minor, we have and hear about the ministry of not only John the Evangelist, who may be John, son of Zebedee, who was John the Disciple, who was appointed John the Apostle, and later in life may have been the man called John the Presbyter or John the Elder, often known as John the Divine. Do you get where I'm going? There is a lot of names and titles ascribed to John's and many people think they're different people. In fact, one of the earliest church historians, Eusebius, felt that John the Elder was a completely different person who wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John than the Apostle John. Papias, another early church father, felt that they were different people. But these men lived and wrote a couple hundred years after the life and ministry of John himself. I think in Scripture we see why this elder, this older man, late in the first century, all the way at the far tip of modern-day Turkey, could be the same John as the son of Zebedee, brother of James, business partner, partner of Peter and Andrew, first cousin of Jesus. When you read Matthew and Mark, both of them mention that John and James' mother, Salome, was a sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That would make John Jesus' first cousin. How does John see himself? He sees himself as the apostle that Jesus loved. So we'll see how we go from the shores of the Sea of Galilee to the Aegean Sea, an island prison, with that same John. Let's begin in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in the first verse. We'll read the first three verses. The book begins, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it. 
and take it to heart what is written in it because the time is near. This prophecy that Jesus gives to John is to be read aloud in the churches so that the people are encouraged and they change their hearts and their lives to be in line with what God desires for them. And if they do that, they will be blessed. That's a promise of Scripture. Because not only is that time of suffering at hand, but the hope we have through the revelation, it is near. John, we see this referring to himself as John the servant. John the servant. But this is many years after Jesus walked the shores of Galilee. In fact, most people believe the Revelation as well as the Gospel of John were written not in the 40s or 50s like the letters of the Apostle Paul, not even around the year 60 like the letters of Peter, which we studied just recently here in church. But these are written decades and decades later, probably between 90 and 100 A.D. Would that even be possible in that day with the health system and, and how long people lived? The average lifespan was something in the, the range of 40, 42 years old because of uh, infant mortality and so forth. Could it even be possible that this John, the revelator, is still our John, the beloved disciple, brother of James? Well, let's look in Scripture to see if there's hints of that because I believe there are. And where do we find them? In the Gospel of John. In John chapter 21, that's a powerful passage at the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus has just appeared as the risen Lord on the shore of Galilee. The boys have been out fishing all night. He calls them in, and in front of the disciples, his apostles, Jesus mended the rift between he and Peter for Peter had denied him three times on the eve of his crucifixion. And so Jesus, we remember, asked Peter three times if he loved him. And then he commanded him to feed his sheep, to take care of his lambs. Well, at that time, Peter and Jesus are having a heart-to-heart. And in the middle of that, Peter turns and he points to John. It says in verse 20 of John chapter 21, Peter turned... And saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This is always how John, the author of the gospel, refers to himself. John, referring to himself, says, This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Because Jesus had just predicted that Peter was going to suffer and die for Jesus. He was going to be bound and taken to a place that he didn't want to go. So he says, what about John? What about this young disciple, probably the youngest of the apostolic band, Jesus' beloved disciple? What about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. And John explains, because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? John is clearing up a rumor that he would not die until Christ returned. 
Now, this is interesting, and it implies in the Gospel of John, written very late in the first century, along with the book of Revelation, that the author was of advanced years, and that he had lived so long, people said, well, look, didn't Jesus say, what's it to you if he stays around until I come back? So this is obviously possible for John to be that very John that we see on the shore of Galilee. Another passage, again, reminding us in the Gospel of John, a precious passage, is found a few chapters earlier in John chapter 19. It takes place at the foot of the cross. As Jesus hangs there, we often speak of the seven phrases, the seven words that Jesus says from the cross. And one of these, we remember, Jesus puts the care of his mother into the hands of the apostle John. Verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciples, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And many people point to that and they say this is one reason we see John as an older man, John the Elder, well advanced in years, coming on the scene out in the mission field of the Gentile world much later than all of his fellow apostles. Remember, we saw Peter around the year 60, shortly before his execution at the hands of the Roman emperor, writing letters to the churches in northern Turkey modern-day Turkey. But here's John decades later there. Many people point to the fact that John would have stayed back in Judea taking care of Mary. He took her into his home, and depending on how long she lived, maybe she was long-lived, like our late Queen Elizabeth, 96 years old she lived to be. Amazing. Some of you be getting up earlier, setting your, setting your PBRs for her funeral tomorrow so you can forward fast and see all of the good speaking parts or so forth. But John took care of her. He didn't launch out with the others. He started out as the youngest, and I think God had a plan in that, that John would be able to see all that had taken place and happened during that first century of growth for the Christian faith and then even his letters and his gospel and the revelation itself would come at a timely moment when the church needed them. Look at the synoptic gospels and then how different John's gospel is written 30 or 40 years later. John includes many of the longer teaching portions of Jesus and much of the most precious salvation verses are given through the gospel of John. John came at the perfect opportune time to the mission field, out to that part of the world. He was advanced years, and he came later, but there was a reason for that. And all of that, John, those years later, think how long it had passed. Not only was it approximately 60 years since he had laid eyes on Jesus as they stood on the Mount of Olives, and he ascended into the clouds 60 years, but it had been about 45 years since his brother James had been the first of the apostles to die for his faith. 
And imagine how John felt for the next 40 years as one apostle after the other out on the mission field, word comes back to them that they too had witnessed to their faith with their very life's blood, that they had died. As we were on that tour of the seven churches of the book of Revelation, I'll never forget, we were near Laodicea across the river valley in the ancient city of Hierapolis, right next to Colossae. And there was a beautiful church on the hillside. What's that church up there, that ruined building? Well, that's the tomb of Philip the Apostle. He came out here and gave his life for his faith. Buried with him are two of his daughters who were also martyred at that time. They were prophets in the early church. John heard one after another, the men that he loved and lived with, they gave their lives following Jesus until only John was left. And then he goes to the mission field. And where do we find him? On an island, seemingly forgotten, off the coast. Suffering for his faith in exile. This speaks to us because Jesus promised, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome this world. We see that as we skip down the book of Revelation chapter 1 down to verse 9. John picks up the story. He says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I love how John introduces himself. He is our brother, and he is our companion in our birthright as Christians, as followers of Jesus. And we're not talking prosperity gospel. You're a king's kid, and you deserve a new car. John said, this is your birthright, suffering, the kingdom, and patient endurance. These are ours in Jesus. And he was experiencing it full well. He knew that. It shouldn't surprise us that when we see this attitude toward the faith, that there will be suffering, but also strength and endurance because we're citizens in God's kingdom, that in the Gospel of John, we see that familiar passage in John chapter 15. The same apostle wrote these words from Jesus. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. You're a citizen of the kingdom of God. Jesus reigns in your heart. You don't belong to the world anymore. You're different. And that's why they don't understand you. They may reject you. They may even hate you. Jesus told us that. John remembered it. And he was now, as an old man, experiencing it. But was he feeling desolate, forgotten, or lost? I don't believe so. We never see those early Christians, though they faced incredible persecution and suffering and deprivation and loss, we don't see them despairing. We know they understood that with the suffering came the presence of Christ and the strength and the comfort to all the problems that they faced. 
In 2 Corinthians, a beautiful passage, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to a church that understood what he was speaking of. He said, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received. For just as the suffering of Christ flows over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. This allows endurance. This allows us to weather any of life's storms and come out stronger because only through these times of suffering and testing can we grow to be truly more like Jesus, our master, because we've shared the suffering of Christ and then we receive through his presence the comfort of Christ. Men like the Apostle Paul, sometimes you think he may have spent more time in jail than he did free, but did he despair? No. We see him locked and in chains in dungeons, singing hymns of praise. This is the same Paul who writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2. Remember Jesus Christ raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. You catch that? This world will throw everything they have at you as a believer. And friends, I don't have to tell you that it's getting worse and worse. Our culture is in free fall. Canada is not immune to what the uh, culture wars that are tearing the states apart. Nations that were founded and flourished on Judeo-Christian principles are abandoning basic morality and truth and turning to a destructive, suicidal path. Everything from uh, gender to truth to right and wrong are thrown out the window. And Christians who stand up for the basic truth of God's word are going to be targeted as the problem. It's happened throughout church history and it's happening today and will continue and will increase. So we need that endurance that John and others like the Apostle Paul experienced. He says he's on Patmos. Now Patmos is nearby. Patmos is nearby to to Turkey. It's southwest of the city of Ephesus. It's not that far off the coast, and it's a small island. Do I have a picture of Patmos to throw up there? There you are. Go on a Greek holiday, a little bit deserty, a little scrubby, not a very big island. Today, it's got maybe 3,000 people. About the population of Three Hills lives on Patmos. It's mostly... Greek Orthodox monks at the monastery of St. John and tourists who want to see the cave where John wrote the book of Revelation. Of course, that's a tourist trap. We don't know where John lived on the island, but he said he was exiled to this island. We know that the Roman Empire used the Aegean Islands as penal colonies to exile their enemies, and there were a whole list of crimes that weren't punishable by death but by exile. 
When John lived, he's outlived Paul and Peter who died under the mad reign of the emperor Nero. Nero is now, years ago, took his own life. Nero committed suicide in 68 AD, about five to eight years after he had killed, or about five years after he had executed Paul and Peter. Peter by crucifixion, Paul a Roman citizen by beheading. After Nero, the Roman Empire was in turmoil. In one year, there were four men who claimed to be emperor, and there was a brief civil war. At the same time, their greatest general, Vespasian, he's in Israel trying to put down the rebellion of the Jews, which started in 66 and went on till the fall of Masada and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Vespasian, hearing that the empire is up for grabs, he hands the war over to his son Titus and heads for Rome. He wins the war, becomes the new emperor. And so for about 10 years after Nero, Vespasian of the Flavian dynasty, newly founded, not a Caesar anymore, is the new emperor. When he dies, his son, General Titus, takes over. Boy, that guy was prepared. He had everything going for him. He built the Colosseum from the proceeds, all the gold he harvested from the burned temple in Jerusalem. But he only lived two years. You know, life was hard in those days. And then the younger son, his name's Domitian. Domitian, we will see him next week when we go to Ephesus together. Domitian was a traditionalist. He wanted Rome, he wanted to make Rome great again and return Rome to its roots. And part of that was traditional religion. He wanted to rebuild the temples of Jupiter and exterminate the vermin like Christians. And so Christians were suffering. When Paul was around, he was persecuted by the synagogues, by his fellow Jews, local persecutions. Under Domitian, it became empire-wide. And John, if he was exiled, probably he was accused of, of magic. Believe it or not, any person who prophesied or healed, they were accused of being a magician and they could be exiled. He said he was exiled for the testimony of Jesus and preaching the word of God. Well, that would be seditious too if you proclaimed any king other than the emperor, Domitian. He was very jealous of that. And so John would have been exiled by a local governor, not to one of the larger islands in the north, but to an island like Patmos off the shore. And he would have remained there until the emperor's death. Domitian doesn't die until 96 A.D. would make John about 90 years old when he finally is paroled back to the mainland. During that time on the island, somewhere between the 80s and the early 90s, Jesus appears to John. And John the Apostle, John the Beloved Disciple, becomes John the Revelator because he receives a vision, a vision of the risen Lord. Incredible. We see this vision begins before he writes the letters that Jesus tells them to. We close today by looking at briefly at the vision of Jesus. John is there. It's the Lord's day. It's Sunday. And John is in worship. Verse 10 we read, On the Lord's day, 
I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. John hears a powerful voice, loud like a trumpet, telling him to write a letter to these seven churches that are near and dear to him. They were the churches before his exile that he would have been the overall like area minister. He would have been based in Ephesus, would have visited these churches, helped to appoint and train their pastors. They were near to him. And so gladly he would pass on Jesus' letter to them. I have a map just to locate. This is the, this is the western end of the great Turkish peninsula. If you look, there's a little white circle down in the bottom left corner. That's the Isle of Patmos. See how close it is? South of the Isle of Samos to the great city of Ephesus, which would have been John's hometown later in life. And as we'll see next week, his tomb is there as John lived out the last years of his life and died in Ephesus. Those are the seven churches. You see they're uh, linked by a series of roads. They're in a great big triangular shape all the way out to Laodicea, which is between Hierapolis and Colossae. These are the seven churches precious to John. And so Jesus through John, writes to these churches, as we'll see in the weeks ahead, messages that we can all take to heart. John cannot help himself. He hears this incredible voice giving him this amazing command, and so he turns around, and for the first time in 60 years, he sees Jesus, his Lord, the one he's lived his long years in service to. He sees Jesus not as he saw him, the last time on the Mount of Olives. But it's Jesus. He knows it is. Verse 12, we read, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. That's the phrase from the book of Daniel. That's the phrase that Jesus made his own self-name always referred to himself as the Son of Man. I saw one like a Son of Man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its its brilliance. You can go through point by point and see the symbolism of each one of those things. The powerful word of God which comes out of the mouth of Jesus. His feet like the altar of judgment burned like bronze. And in his hand the seven stars. Jesus glorious. For this is a Jesus that John, the only living person in the whole world, has a living memory of seeing Jesus in his glory. There were only three. One, his brother James, died 45 years ago. The other one, Peter, he'd been put to death by the emperor a quarter century before. And now John, in his old age, he sees Jesus once again brilliant and glorious, just like he did 
on the Mount of Transfiguration. Matthew chapter 17, one of the passages that records that says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. This is the Jesus that John remembered so well. Jesus transfigured. Jesus revealed in his glory. It wasn't only a vision of Jesus. This was a vision of a spiritual reality. A spiritual reality. When we hear the word vision, we often think of uh, something like a hallucination, like a dream. He was in a vision state. He, he prayed for a vision. He was in a sweat lodge trying to have a vision, a hallucination, something vivid and otherworldly. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to the book of Revelation, the visions are the reality. What you live in today, spiritually, you're as good as blind. All you see is this thin, temporary, material world and the eternal reality that's taking place all around us from salvation to the spiritual warfare going on. We go blithely through our lives blind and oblivious to what's going on around us. In the book of Revelation, Jesus rolls back the scroll, and you see with your eyes, with the Apostle John, the reality of what's happening. And Jesus, in this vision, shows us a reality, a true sight of the Lord's relationship to his churches, to you and I. It's amazing. There is the Son of Man standing in the midst of the seven lampstands, which we know are the churches, This is Jesus. We often quote the verse where two or more are gathered in his name. There he is in the midst of us. But you know he really is here. And he is glorious. And if our hearts are hard and our eyes are dim, we don't see it. Our worship is perfunctory and we go through the motions. When the creator of heaven and earth is right here with us. John seeing the vision of the glorious Lord. Just like we see in the book of Daniel, this same heavenly figure appears and the prophet Daniel falls in a swoon on his face as if dead. In the same way, John responded to the glory of God. In verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen and what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand And of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. 
And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. We'll finish there today. Because Jesus has revealed that the churches are precious to him. And he stands and is in our midst. (laughs) The angels in his hands, angelos, simply as messenger. The context of this passage tells us that those angels are the pastors of those seven churches. Each one of the letters addressed to the churches is addressed to the angel, the messenger of that church, to take Christ's message to the church. We should look at this passage with fear and trembling. Pastors, we see them as just employees, some better than others. If they please us, they can stay a little while longer. If they get on our last nerve, we just cut them loose. Do you realize in Christ's opinion, men and women in ministry are his angels and they shine like stars? To hold that office, Scripture says, is a terrible thing. The responsibility before the Lord is much greater than others face. The judgment more severe. It's Jesus' church, his servants. It's all his. Heaven help me when I've ever called a church my church. It's not ours. It's the Lord's. And as John had this vision, brothers and sisters, we need to catch a glimpse of God's vision for the church. It's all his. And how does he want his bride to conduct herself? Over the next seven weeks, we see one church after another come before her master. And he commends them and encourages them and builds them up and when needed, corrects them. The letters to the seven churches are letters to us. And this vision tells us that's the reality that we need to tune into. Let's pray together, and as we pray, I'll call upon the worship team to close our time in song. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as John, John, the beloved disciple, John, the faithful carer of Jesus' mother Mary until her death, John, who went to the mission field, and Lord, instead of living with the churches, was arrested for his faithfulness, and languished on a backwater island. Lord, instead of losing hope, you gave him a vision of what's really going on and opened his eyes to the spiritual reality around him. And Lord, in your perfect timing, you used the last of the apostles, the last surviving apostle who walked with Jesus on those dusty roads of Galilee to complete the story to write the Gospel of John and the letters encouraging the churches to love and the book of Revelation to give us hope and comfort even in the face of persecution and suffering knowing that the end and victory of Jesus is assured. Lord, for this we give you thanks. And I pray, Father, that you would prepare our hearts in the weeks ahead to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
and that you would speak fresh and new to us. Father, thank you for this time in your presence. Send us now to our places of ministry to shine your light and to share your love. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.